0: Physics World.
1: Hello and welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Over the past few years, some countries have announced national strategies for creating quantum economies. But what will it take to ensure that a country like the UK has the skills and resources needed to support a thriving quantum industry? We'll find out in the second half of this episode. But first, Physics World's Tammy Freeman explores the growing use of artificial intelligence in radiology.
0: Artificial intelligence, or AI, is set to increasingly impact all areas of our everyday lives. Within medicine, radiology, the use of medical imaging to diagnose and treat disease is a prime candidate for exploiting the benefits that AI could bring. Integrating AI tools into radiology could advance the diagnosis, quantification, and management of multiple medical conditions. But alongside, it's essential to acknowledge that some AI products may add little value or even have potential to cause harm. To address these issues in more detail, five radiology societies in the USA, Canada, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand have come together to publish a joint statement on the development and use of AI tools in radiology. And I'm speaking today with one of the authors of this paper, Bib Allen, Chief Medical Officer for the American College of Radiology Data Science Institute, and a Diagnostic Radiologist at Grandview Medical Center in Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome to the podcast, Bib.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And it's a a pleasure to be here uh, today with you, uh, Tammy, and looking forward to our discussion.
0: So this paper was put together by five radiology societies across the globe and it was also published simultaneously in five scientific journals. So why did the societies feel there was such a strong need to publish this statement at this time?
2: Well, I, I think that the time you know is is now because uh, in the United States and globally as well we're seeing, a rapid growth in the number of AI products that have been cleared by our regulatory bodies for use in clinical practice. Um, I think there's a need uh, for radiologists to be able to know uh, what's available, how they're used, what are the strengths and what are the limitations. And so I, I think that the paper describes some of that because at the same time we're seeing that that we're finding that the regulatory clearance alone Um, does not necessarily ensure that a particular product will work as expected in all practices. For instance, AI performance depends on whether or not the environment where the AI model is being used is similar to the environment where it was trained, uh, including the parameters such as equipment type or the protocols that were used or the patient population. For instance, we shouldn't expect a model to detect lung nodules that was trained only in adults uh, to work in children. So getting this information across was something that that we thought as radiology specialty societies was very important.
0: So can you give a couple of examples of how AI could add value within radiology?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm going to, you know, ultimately, and, and, you know, maybe this is a uh, dream for the future, but the AI models that are going to add the most value for us are the ones that are going to be able to that that do the things that human radiologists can't do. So, for instance, computational tasks, such as predicting liver iron or fat or pulmonary emphysema, uh, have important clinical implications for our patients. But they're difficult for radiologists to perform these computations uh, on a routine basis. However, AI models can make this information readily available and potentially impact care. Frankly, in the In the long term, I'm looking for the day where AI may be able to predict a particular phenotype about a disease that we can't see in the imaging, such as a responder or non-responder to chemotherapy or radiation therapy in cancer. For instance, we know that glioblastoma, which is a malignant brain tumor, um, is known to have a really poor response rate to both chemotherapy and radiation, but up to 10% will have a positive response. So will AI one day be able to look at the MR scan, predict who's going to respond, who's not going to respond, and provide, you know, the ability to make sure that the people that have the best chance of responding get all the care that they need, but not provide, not do all that stuff that, that potentially has negative consequences uh, doesn't impact care to the people who are unlikely to have any benefit. In the short term, though, we're seeing... Uh, AI models that are being uh, helpful for us right now. I think some of them that are out there are helping us with quality assurance, making sure that we, um, you know, are detecting everything that we can for intracranial hemorrhage, pulmonary embolus, and other things. These same models we're seeing decreased turnaround time in the emergency department and decreased hospital length of stay. And then, of course, non-interpretive AI is making improvements in scheduling, protocoling uh, and image quality.
0: Okay, yeah, so a lot of of different applications. So, I mean, radiology was in many ways an early adopter of AI with techniques such as computer-aided detection and computer-aided diagnosis. Um, They've been used for several decades to analyze these medical images. So what will be so different about the new generation of AI that's being developed for these applications?
2: Well, you know, of course you are correct. AI has been around a long, long time, but it's really only recently that we've had the computational uh, power and improvements in computing power with GPUs that has drastically uh, reduced the computation time uh, required to develop AI models with deep learning techniques such as convoluted neural networks. The newly developed AI models as such, they're able to ingest much more data and they are a lot more accurate than say the original breast CAD tools we've had, you know, since the late 1990s. I think one thing that we're gonna have to consider um, and hopefully in a positive way is the effect of generative AI in large language models. They may be poised to replace convolutional neural networks in training AI models and in reporting findings and really, you know, improve imaging care. So, you know, I think all of those things are what are, are are making today so much different than the past.
0: Yeah, I mean, and do you think maybe the field of radiology is sort of more willing to embrace AI just because it's been using it in in these ways for so long?
2: You know, I think that I, I think that's possible. Although, you know, I mean, we we you know we see in pathology, uh, um, you know tools uh similar to CAD that have are that have actually made the autonomous interpretation of pap smears uh possible. So it's it's not just radiology. The first the first AI application that actually got, you know, in the U, in the US we call them, you know, CPT codes, uh was not for radiology, but it was for detecting diabetic retinopathy uh from images of the uh, the retina. So I, I think that certainly radiology uh is at the tip of the spear, as you say, but uh I think it's gonna be throughout all of healthcare. And I and I think that it's important for other subspecialties to sort of work together and take advantage of what we're seeing in radiology uh regard, you know, things like FDA clearance alone, you know, not assuring uh accuracy to prevent some of the misfires that we've seen in some of the clinical algorithms for sepsis or um, cancer uh, treatment modeling and some of those things, you know, that just didn't work off the shelf. And I, and I think that um, uh, understanding why they don't work and how to mitigate that is something that all of healthcare is gonna to have to see.
1: Hmm,
0: so the, the paper details various aspects that AI developers need to consider when they're creating a new radiology AI tool. Can you describe some of these?
2: The paper basically is advice for radiologists, developers and regulators to look at basically the whole life cycle of the AI model. So we started out with what should uh, developers be thinking about? uh, What are some of the things that are important to them, uh, then what should the end users be like? You know, how do you choose the right product for your your practice? And then once you get it deployed, uh, what do you do to make sure that it continues to work? You know, you can't just sort of unleash it and expect it to work um, longitudinally forever because there'll be data drift from new machines install different protocols used, or even changes in patient population. And all of those can degrade the uh, performance of the model downstream. So the paper sought to kind of organize it like that about what should we do, uh, you know, when choosing the model AI governance, what should we do in acceptance testing and what we should we do for downstream modeling or monitoring.
0: So, I mean, how can a radiology department, say they're looking to install a new AI tool, how can they evaluate it to make sure it's suitable for the proposed task?
2: Well, so I, th- I think one of the things that, that we stressed in the paper was in particular, you know, having, having a governance group, because you really, the, the institution needs to decide, you know, what, what do they need? What do we um, you know, how do we, do we really need the product? You know, for instance, there are AI tools that are out there that are FDA cleared, say that will characterize the lung nodule by percent risk of, of cancer. And that might be nice, but my question to the, for the developer in that regard would be, you know, whether there's any real difference in the management of a, a lung nodule that has a 75% risk of cancer versus one that has a 25% risk. Would a would a practice really rather have a model that provides a lung RAD score, um, you know, rather than that? Now, I'm not saying that, that the lung RADs classification and bi-RADs and all the things that we're using on a day-to-day basis are the, you know, the end-all for what developers should be doing. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, they... In the in the current environment number one they should focus on generalizability making sure that their training and validation um, data you know work across many practice types and they may need to make sure that it that it works in the radiologists workflow uh, they need to improve efficiency not hamper it um, radiologists need to understand what's available as well the the ACR uh, data science Institute has uh, put together a a database of all of the uh, FDA-cleared AI models for um, radiology. The the catalog provides the FDA's uh, 510K summaries so radiologists can see what subspecialty area, uh, the purpose of the model, and other things. But sometimes this information doesn't really uh, contain what we think is important, you know, for ensuring generalizability, uh, including characteristics about the training data and the st- instructions for use. So in the past um, six months or so, we've been working with um, developers on what we call an AI transparency initiative to add this information, you know, voluntarily from the developers to AI Central in hopes that as people are checking out, you know, what we what, what's available, They'll be able to see this training data, the performance, you know, data in that, and the characteristics of the patient population, the characteristics of the machines, so they can tell, you know, which models may work in in their practices and kind of limit their potential um, purchase decisions to ones that have, uh, you know, that ability. And then finally, I think end users should still take steps to. Um, ensure the the model is going to work as expected uh, before they deploy it. So some sort of acceptance testing. Uh, I think you know the paper discussed a little bit about the robustness of that. It will certainly depend on the IT capabilities of the individual practices. But some, but we did recommend some level of acceptance testing prior to deploying it in clinical use.
0: Hmm. So I mean that's interesting that you're saying what would really help would know would be knowing the type of data that the AI is trained on, um you know the the patient characteristics, the system characteristics. and then when you know that, that would give you more of a clue whether
2: it would be suitable or not. Well, that's exactly right. and that and you know, we considered that important enough, you know, to take on that task for AI central just because mm-hmm. the FDA, you know they have more information, um, but they're sort of bound uh, to the developer not to public, you know, not to make public things that the developer might think is the secret sauce or something like that. So we've been working with the developers individually, um, you know, to for them to voluntarily provide this information, the instructions for use. Um, you know, it's this big, um, um, you know, document of that, that contains a lot of this information. Um, you know, so it'll it'll be out there, and of course, AI Central is uh, you know free for the uh, end users to 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 look and see and and easily searchable, uh, you know, to find this information. So we we really hope that it'll that it'll help in 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 users picking the right product.
0: Okay, so currently most AI tools work alongside rather than replacing the radiologist, but the next step possibly maybe autonomous AI. So what are the additional risks of relying solely on AI for radiology applications? And do you see this approach being introduced in the clinic in the future?
2: You know, the future is arriving a lot faster than I thought it was arriving just even uh, a year or two ago. So um, uh, I, I, I have no, you know, totally, I, I don't have a way to predict what will be available Um, you know, and, and when, um, I, I do know that currently there's no regulatory pathway in the United States for autonomous AI. So interpretation by a radiologist is still necessary. We support that decision. We are seeing enough, uh, um, issues, uh, with, you know, performance of AI cleared tools, uh, You know, as we discussed, that they don't all work as uh, expected in clinical practice. So a a different level of um, trust is going to have to be established when we go to autonomous AI. Now, whether that can be uh, quick in coming or take longer in coming is, is certainly something that we'll see. And again, where the impact of generative AI may have on that. One thing that we're we're seeing though, is that in Europe, Accipit had a, an AI company, has a product called ChestLink, that they got the CE mark, which is sort of the European stamp of a cleared medical device, for software that identifies a normal chest X-ray. So basically, they have a diagnosis that's normal. As a radiologist, I might argue that normal really means the lack of significant findings. So, you know, I would ask it, well, did it look for this? Did it look for that? Did it look for this? Not just say, okay, this is normal. But on the other hand, um, I think that that is potentially something up and coming. And in our, you know, workflows, one of the things where that might be useful in an autonomous setting is, you know, the identification of a negative screening mammogram. Uh, There are a lot of implications uh, for that accuracy. Uh, And if it can identify, say, 25% of the normal screening mammograms and the incidence of the cancer is really four in a thousand, then you have this whole pool That wasn't cleared by the AI as being normal, but is still very unlikely to have a cancer. Does that change the way the radiologist thinks about how to interpret that? So I think that there's going to be a lot of there needs to be a lot of research, a lot of uh, iteration, a lot of discussion with regulatory agencies uh, before, um, you know, AI will will, um, you know, be able to do autonomously functioning tasks. Uh, I think the short term should really be the focus on these uh, opportunities for AI to help radiologists do the things that we're not able to do, and then help us improve efficiency and quality.
0: Yeah, that's interesting and, and possibly reassuring as well that, you know, we're still having the radiologists' input in addition. Finally, I just wanted to ask if you could suggest one of looking into the future, one new application where AI might make the biggest impact in radiology?
2: Turns out that, to me, is the hardest question of all. (laughs) I, I, you know, you know, identifying one impactful thing, uh, you know, when there are, you know, tens of thousands of potential diagnoses out there in radiology. I thought about this, though, and I really think that where we are right now, is that we're seeing a shortfall of radiologists in our workforce and it's not just i mean it's true in the united states and across europe and potentially worldwide i mean goodness gracious if you look at uh, the number of radiologists in in low and middle income countries and you know other places with uh um you know lots of, of patients that's uh, um you know, workforce is a, a huge challenge for us. And so I think the most impactful AI models are going to be those that improve radiologist efficiency. Um, they're, you know, in the short term, and you said in the near future, so I'm going to say the short term, that improving efficiency, um, it may take a little longer as we go through the, the uh, clearance process and how large language models are going to play a role there. But if we can improve radiologist efficiency, improve our timeliness in uh, interpretations, you know, while helping us add those things that that, that humans can't see, uh, I think are set to be the, uh, the, the most impactful.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today.
2: Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: That was the radiologist Bib Allen in conversation with Physics World's Tammy Freeman. Earlier this month, the UK's Department for Science, Innovation and Technology and the trade association Tech UK hosted a quantum skills task force workshop in London. Its purpose was to gather views from industry and academia about how the UK should create and nurture a workforce for the quantum economy. Physics World's Catherine Skipper was at the workshop and she joins me now to chat about quantum skills and why the UK needs them. Hi Catherine. Hi Hamish. So Catherine, last year the UK government released its National Quantum Strategy, which calls for the country to become a quantum-enabled economy by 2033. What exactly does that mean? So
3: the government has five missions as part of um, the strategy. Uh, Firstly, by 2035, the plan is that we will have access to UK-based quantum computers uh, that can can perform a trillion error-free calculations compared to a couple of hundred, which is what the best quantum computers can do now and with this quantum computing capability the hope is to build a quantum enabled internet. Um, uh, In addition uh, the plan is that the the NHS will be using quantum technology Uh, so the research on um, sort of biomedical quantum devices is on using them to diagnose and monitor conditions like cancer uh, and Alzheimer's disease. Um, another application of quantum technology is as an alternative to uh, satellite communications, which can be intercepted or jammed, whereas um, quantum-based sensors can, um, can be used to navigate an aircraft without communicating with an external satellite. Uh, and finally, um, the goal is that quantum technology will be used to support infrastructure. So, for example, um, to create surveys off the ground uh, before laying cables or laying piping um, to look for obstacles.
1: Wow, that, that seems like a very ambitious plan. And uh, 2033 really isn't that far away. Um so it's people that we need, isn't it? I think just about everyone agrees that the demand for people with quantum skills currently outstrips supplies. What well, what are some of the skills that the UK needs in order to um, to make this national quantum strategy a reality?
3: So a theme that I noticed talking to people at the event was the need for skilled technicians. Um, so career pathways that involve an apprenticeship or a diploma and a lot of learning on the job rather than um, a university degree so laboratories like uh, the new um, quantum computing center for example are going to need a lot of people with expertise in um, electronics and vacuum technology and cryogenics and that's a big area where employees highlighted that they struggled to recruit um, so as part of this, the government has pledged to support more uh, quantum apprenticeships um, and, for example, to extend the National Physical Laboratories apprenticeship scheme to include more career pathways in quantum.
1: And I suppose I suppose it's good news for the UK because I you know we we lead in cryogenics I suppose uh, you know with Oxford Oxford Instruments um, so yeah I, I suppose it's looking good and it's I suppose it's really good to hear that you know the quantum revolution isn't just going to be for people who've done degrees in physics and PhDs in physics that uh, sort of the the wealth is going to be spread around to um, you know to people working on the more on a more technical side of, of quantum technology but but what about university graduates and PhDs I'm guessing that, that that they're going to be needed and and what's the plan for training them up and and giving them the skills that they can transfer out of academia and into industry
3: yeah so I think The image that I think most people still have of a quantum physicist is of a university academic in front of a blackboard. But um, quantum technology is becoming a really profitable, really um, commercial industry. Um, So one thing that was discussed at the event was the importance of centres for doctoral training uh, for physics graduates, where they have links with um, quantum industries from the start, and where they're actually taught Business skills so that they understand how to commercialize their research. Um, so again, the government has a plan to double the number of quantum CDTs, and those will train about a thousand students over the next decade.
1: And, and Catherine, you're, you've written about this in Physics World. Um, your article is called are we ready for the quantum economy? Did Did you get the feeling that the UK is ready <laughs> for the quantum economy?
3: Yes. Yeah, I think, well, I think we are doing the things that we need to get ready for. It. But um, it is a very quickly changing industry. It's very difficult to predict what's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, I think the the important thing is that the UK is a, continues to be an attractive place for quantum businesses to come and that it continues to, like, I guess, react to the, the changing skills that are going to be needed, particularly for um, non-degree pathways.
1: Well, that's great, Catherine. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And um, Catherine's article can be found on the Physics World website. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Bib Allen, Tammy Freeman, and Catherine Skipper for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at theories of modified gravity, which seek to explain the structure of the universe without the need for dark matter. His guests are modified gravity advocate Stacy McGaugh of Case Western Reserve University in the U.S. And the dark matter enthusiast Indranil Bannock, who is at the U.K.'s University of St. Andrews. That episode is called Dark Matter vs. Modified Gravity. Which team are you on? And you can find it on the Physics World website. Or at your favorite podcast provider,
0: Physics World.